We're a cross-focused church. We love uh, singing about the cross of Jesus where he accomplished our salvation. Thank you, sir. What a, what a sir. Uh, we ha- don't wash your hands. That'll be fine. Uh, and and uh, we, will, we love preaching about the cross, which is what we're about to do right now. And we love, of course, knowing that every word in Scripture points ultimately to the cross of Jesus Christ. So can you please open up to Mark chapter 8? We're going to be there today. Um, and just before we, while you're still turning there, I'm going to just let you know that we have uh, a, an apologetics conference coming up in September, on the 18th of September. That's a Saturday from 9 till 4.30 in the morning. And the night beforehand, so that'll be the Friday night, we're actually going to have a, we're hosting a debate between uh, myself and a representative from Brisbane Atheist Society. And we're debating the question, is belief in the Christian scriptures, I should at least be able to say it, the Christian scriptures logical? He's taking, of course, the negative. I'm going to be presenting, sorry, breath of relief. The positive. I do think it's logical to believe the scriptures. And so we're going to debate, and then Saturday is going to be our conference. But we have been waiting off on the special announcement of who our guest live streaming in from overseas is. And I can tell you that, first of all, we're having a little bit of bad news first, and then we'll hit the good news. Uh, 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 Craig Ireland, our former pastor here, who's now lead pastor in a church in America, in New York State, was going to be flying in, but because of so many difficult... COVID rules that have been piled up. He's just not going to be able to. So he's going to be streaming in for us, doing some sessions. But equally as excited as, as about that, we all love Craig, right? Free the snow, Craig. We love Craig. He's, a, he's, a, he's our uh, older brother and he's, he's over in America. But anyway, but we're also streaming in Dr. James White, director of... Yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, uh, Dr. James White, director of Alpha and Omega Ministries and uh, uh, elder, one of the teaching elders at... Apologia Church over in Arizona. He's going to be live streaming in, not a pre-recorded video, not tricking you. He's going to be live. He'll be up on our big screen, and uh, there'll be two sessions that he's doing. One is against a false teaching, and one is for a foundation of our faith. Uh, that's what He's going to be doing that, and then there's going to be about 20 minutes of Q&A that we're going to have with him. So James White on that day, the tickets are available online. They're $20 on the early bird right now. And then, uh, and you can also buy yourself some some nice shirts and whatnot. So I encourage you to be there. Invite your friends. Maybe maybe shout your you know Christian friend a ticket, uh, so that you can bring them along and they can uh, uh, interact with us and have some great fun. We would love to be open and welcoming to all of our unsaved loved ones. But I, I know that by now you're in Mark chapter eight, and so we are going to be <coughs> um, opening this up. We are at a very crucial, crucial point in the book of Mark, uh, just so that you can understand the structure of Mark. Um, it's broken down really into three and a half main sections. Chapter 1, until the passage we're talking about today, chapter 1 until halfway through chapter 8, is all about Jesus doing miracles and teaching in the Galilee and surrounding areas up in north Israel. That's Mark chapter 1 to 8. At the end of chapter 8, we have today's text, which is an enormous turning point. This is where Jesus goes from being vague to being explicit about who he is. And he's going to be going now from ministering to the crowds of Galilee. Now he's going to go for the next few chapters. He's going to focus explicitly from end of Mark chapter 8 until the end of Mark chapter 10. He's just teaching the 12 disciples on the fact that he's going to die and what that means for Christian discipleship. He's going to go through three rounds in Mark 8 to Mark 10, where he tells them he's going to die, they completely misunderstand it, and then he uses it as a teaching moment for the Christian life. 
Then they do that again. Then they do that a third time. And then he walks into Jerusalem. And it's the showdown of him against the Pharisees for that final week that culminates in his death, his triumphal resurrection, and the Great Commission. Are we excited? Good, but we're going to have to wait because this is the last one that we're doing in Mark for a term. We're going to stop after today, which is just such a providential spot to be stopping um, at this turning point. We're going to go to the book of Acts next week and take 10 weeks going through the whole of term three, hitting the big highlight sermons in the book of Acts. It's going to be fun and exciting and fast-paced and mission-focused, and so we're going to hit all of the main sermons in the book of Acts and then come back to Mark at, uh, for the holidays and term four. So I hope you're uh, excited for that. But now let's go down to Mark chapter eight. I'm going to read the section today and then uh, give some, some surrounding context and, of course, exposition. <clears throat> Mark chapter eight, verse 22. The word of the living God reads like this. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch them. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on the eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this to them plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. May God bless to us the reading and expositing of his own precious authoritative word this morning. If you don't know, that's where we all say amen really hearty because we love the word of God. May God bless to us the word of God this morning. There we go. Now, this is such a, such a, uh, a clever, right? You, you don't often read the Gospels expecting literary uh, uh, techniques to make points. You're just sort of re- reading a dumb fishermen that are probably illiterate from the first century, right? That, that's all we're doing. No, the Gospel writers are in, 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 well, I'm illiterate. They are not. They were intentional. That's what I was trying to say. They were intentional about the order that they write their miracles and the lessons of Jesus and, and how they break down the gospel uh, that, that, they're, that they're telling. And in Mark's story, we have just seen back in verse 18, Jesus reprimand and rebuke the disciples because his very clear teachings and his very clear uh, miracles and the message that lay behind them were being completely lost on the miracles, on, on the disciples. They were seeing the miracles, misinterpreting their meaning. 
They were hearing his teaching, misunderstanding their application. And Jesus, back in verse 18, he, he said to them, Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Because, of course, he had done the miracle with the bread, and then he warned them against, you know, the, the infectious teaching of the Pharisees that he called leaven, and then they start stressing out because he's talking about leaven and no one brought bread. But even if they didn't, he just fed like 20,000 people without bread. So what's their problem? Jesus berates them, and, and that was on the boat, and they land in Bethsaida. This is a, the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. The, the town name Bethsaida just means fishing village. <clears throat> so in Bethsaida, they arrive, and very cleverly, Mark tells the story of a blind man that the blind disciples are about to learn a lesson from. These blind disciples that Jesus has just said, you have eyes, but you don't see, and then they run into a blind man. <clears throat> so here they are, in the very same town that he fed 5,000 people uh, way back then, a few chapters ago. Now he is brought to him, so obviously uh, uh, guides bring this man because he's, he's blind, uh, and they bring to him this, this man begging for healing. And Jesus, in this tender way, he, he takes the man. And in order to make this a teaching point with the disciples, and in order to make sure that this isn't just a crowd frenzy, and for purposes only, truly, Jesus knows, he takes the man away from the crowd, even out of the village. So he goes on quite a walk, guiding this man by the hand. What a walk that would have been. And he takes them out, and of course the disciples went with him, and standing around, Jesus does another miracle that makes it really difficult for a Christian preacher. He grabs him by the cheeks and he spits in his eyeballs. And I, again, don't have reasons for that. But it's in the word of God. Be blessed. Be blessed. Hermeneutics would teach us that this is not a uh, prescriptive text. Don't go and do this. I know we have medical professionals in our room. Uh, uh, you'll probably, in fact, in today's day, you'll be arrested for that kind of unhygienic act. But anyway, here's Jesus. He spits on the man's eyes and asks him. Now, this is a, um, uh, a miracle that is quite unique. This is the only time in Jesus' ministry that we see Jesus ask or check on the efficacy of his miracles. The efficacy of his miracles is certain. He's God. He's commanding creation to do things. He doesn't need to check in later and do, a, do a, an evaluation report to see whether his work worked. And yet this time he does. He doesn't just say, go to the town, you're healed. Go back home, your daughter is healed. Go back home, your son will be raised again to life. He just spits on this guy's eyes and then asks him, did it work? If I was the blind, I would be quite annoyed. You spat on my face, not even sure that this would work. I'm allowing you to experiment on me. If you're pretty sure, this is a, a go-to. It's not FDA approved, but if it's certain, you can do it. And it wasn't even sure. Great. But, but when Jesus does something out of the ordinary, and when the gospel writers tell us something like this, we, we take notice. Why does Jesus ask, and the other first of any of Jesus' miracles, why is this only a partial healing? This never happens anywhere else. This is not an excuse for so many false televangelists today who will, who will uh, promise people or kick them in the guts or, or slap them on the face or throw their jacket at them or push them on the ground or take their money and promise, you're not healed now, 
but you will be. Uh, go home and, 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 and don't you feel a little bit warm in your right foot? Yeah, I guess I do. Well, that's the first part of the healing. And like the blind man, the rest will come later. When you get home, you write your check and you send it in. You know, they, they use this as an excuse for the, 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 the regularity of, of, of gradual healings. That's, that's not always seen. When God does miraculous healings, it's almost always instant. And it's almost always uh, 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 verifiable right there and then. Well, Jesus does a partial healing, which is, again, a first, and we need to start asking why. <clears throat> the reality is that Jesus wants us to pay attention to what he's doing because he's telling a lesson here with the young men he calls the disciples. He says to the man after he is healed, so, of course, then uh, just here he, 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 tell, he, he prays over him again, touches his eyes, and then his eyes were open, he, his sight was restored, he saw everything clearly. So it does happen. He does fully heal him, but in stages. And then Jesus says, don't go into the village, just, just go around about, go your way home, don't tell people, don't spread the news, because the people, the crowds, were still fully blind, spiritually. Just like the disciples are sort of half blind, they're seeing stuff, misunderstanding things. The, just the people are still fully blind. They hear miracles. They, they, they flock to him and distract the purpose of his ministry, which is teaching the word of God and, 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 and preparing the disciples for the Great Commission. And so for this reason, Jesus says, go home, don't tell people. We've escaped the crowds now. And from this point on, he takes his disciples alone and starts to disciple them specifically. So he tells him not to tell anybody, and off he goes home. But what this man needed from his blindness, the disciples needed spiritually. What this man had physically was this half-sight, half-blindedness, which is as good as each other. If you're going to the doctors and they're testing you out for your driver's license, checking your eyes, making sure you're still safe, and you say it, it's either a, a circle that says go, maybe, or it's a, 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 another shape that says stop, it's not really important, I can see that there's a sign. I can see that there's lights up there and they're green or they're red. I'm colorblind, it doesn't matter, but I can tell you that there's a light. There's something in front of me and it's either a, 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 a driveway or it's a mass of children. It doesn't matter. I can see that there's something in front of me, right? You can see that half blindness, just about as helpful as complete blindness. And with this man, when he looks around after this half miracle, Jesus tells him, look around, what do you see? He says, I see men or trees. That, that they're pretty easily confusable, right? Uh, humans are made of bark and leaves and branches, and humans are, uh, uh, stand still and trees walk around. Is, is it really that big of a deal? Jesus wants us to show, to see, that the, the condition of this man needed complete healing or it was utterly useless. It gives a, a spark of hope, but actually probably just gets him falsely confident and killed later on when he thinks he's about to jump on a horse and it's, it's a, it's a demon-possessed man over in the graves, right? Well, we don't know what, what, what's happening. But the point is that complete healing is necessary. Half healing will not do. And so it is spiritually. That Jesus is, is pointing this picture to the disciples. Can you imagine him asking, do you see anything? He says, yes, I see men that look like trees walking around. And these disciples are laughing at this guy. And Jesus is quietly, because he can't see anything yet, pointing at them. Open your brain. The, the, what the disciples had was this half sight 
of seeing, that they were with the Messiah, seeing the miracles, and they were understanding the beginnings of religion, but with the misunderstanding they currently had, which is going to become so much clearer later, they were still not at the solution. They were still misunderstanding everything if they were half understanding everything. And this is a, this is a lesson for us. Friends, people who come to church are often half blind, half seeing, but still half blind. Where they see some of the teachings of Jesus and they can quote some of the verses, they can sing some of the songs and answer some of the Sunday school questions, they know some of the catechism, they've heard of the confessions, they they know their way around the Bible generally, they can recite some things, but this whole grace and works thing, I know that God's gracious and we do good works, but whether we do good works, then he's gracious, or he's gracious, then we do good works, it's ultimately foggy and not important. If that is the vision of of the gospel and what the word would teach, then a half-blindness is as good as total blindness. People think, yeah, you know, God's there and I'm spiritual. And Look, is it one religion or all religions that lead to God? Let's not get too specific. I can see men that look like trees. That is as good as total blindness. And the atheist or the demon is as saved as somebody who calls themselves spiritual without a clear understanding of the word of God. People who believe in God generally, but look, was Jesus God or was he, was he sort of a, a, a disciple of God or an angel of God or sort of a creation of God that was very God-like? That's just not important. We think that Jesus is a good moral teacher. That kind of half-blindness and half-sight is as good as complete spiritual blindness. To think about the Bible and say, you know, it's great and it's helpful and there's good bits in here, but is there errors Was it written by man or by God? Is it absolutely trustworthy? Should we preach out of it or sort of just tip our hat to it? That's not entirely important. Do you start to see how how Christianity, that can grow in in maybe even an age of comfort, if we want to look historically, how without the persecution, without the the shaving off of the false, fat, discipleship culture that can happen, without the, the shaving of the iron so that it is sharp like a sword, Christianity and and many churches can be inflated with half-blind disciples. And it is dangerous because confident in their own blindness, uh, sorry, in their own sight, they are in fact still functionally blind and entirely miss the gospel of Jesus. I want to press today that you would be those who, who know the word of God, not surface level, That as we were warned in a prior chapter, that we would not come to the Lord with our lips only, but also our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength, as Jesus would instruct us. We must come to God knowing that in and of myself, I am utterly and completely blind of wisdom, scriptural truth, and godliness. And I need God to give me the, the full work of sight in my soul, or I am damned. And, and a half-religious sight is no good. Be those who are desperate to the Lord. Show me wondrous things out of your word, God. I need your light. Your word is that light to my soul. If we conclude that half-knowledge is better than nothing, we end up, like the Jews, actually more condemned because we misunderstood, which was given to us. So this is this picture of half-blindness, half sight that the disciples are being pictured as, but, but in the next two sections where Jesus asks them who he, he, they think he is, and then when he teaches on his death and resurrection, 
in that where we see Jesus' person and his work. You dot this down in your mind. The theology of Jesus Christ, as theologians explain, who he is and what he did is just that. His person and his work is a helpful way to summarize it. Who he is, his nature, and what he is, what he did, the person and work of Jesus. He's going to now go into a teaching moment of who he is and what he's doing. And we're going to see a little bit of sight come from the disciples and a whole lot of blindness come from the disciples. So turn with me now over to verse 27. And this is when Jesus then, after, after this healing miracle, he doesn't go back into the village. He takes the disciples way up north to Caesarea Philippi, which is a great deal of a walk. And around there, he's going to be doing some of his discipleship and teachings with them especially. But on the way, while they're walking, Jesus asked to them, who do people say that I am? This is a common, this is the, the, the peripatetic style of teaching, which sort of came out of the, the Greek philosophers. They would walk around, ask questions, and teach their disciples. And so Jesus is doing that. He's walking, and he turns to his man and sort of engages in conversation. This is just a summary. It would have been a large discussion, but the, 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 the gist of it was, who do the people who hear me and know me say that I am? am. And they had heard, and they just recapped the very same things Herod had heard. This was just a common rumor that Jesus, who clearly had divine power given to him, was probably a resurrected prophet of old. Or, as it says here, many of them thought that it was Elijah, because Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, prophesied that Elijah would come back before the Messiah comes. They had misunderstood that John the Baptist was the one in the spirit of Elijah. That was the Elijah. So, well, he's, maybe he's Elijah. Others thought, well, maybe he's John the Baptist. And maybe this was obviously people who hadn't seen John the Baptist and seen Jesus. They were different people. They just heard of his death and heard of Jesus' miracles. They, they, they make the connection. He, he died, but he didn't die. He's resurrected in this Jesus of Nazareth. And so these rumors were going around, and all of them are better than complete blindness, right? I mean, who's got it better? You were to say, who is Jesus? And somebody said, no clue what you're talking about. What is Jesus? Or you would ask somebody over here and say, who is Jesus? And they were to tell you, oh, he's the most blessed prophet. Peace be upon him. Who has a, who has a greater deal of sight? You, you, would be, you would be tempted to say, well, it's, 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 the, it's the Muslim. It's the, the, the Buddhist. It's the person over here who, who speaks of Jesus highly. But they are just as blind if they do not have the supreme, total, sovereign, divine title and personhood of Jesus Christ defined as the word of God does. Everybody was half seeing but half blind about this and Jesus then turns to them. Well, who do you say that I am? It's been about two years of ministry now, guys. I mean, I've been teaching. I've been doing my ministry. I've been showing you miracles. I've been trusting that the Holy Spirit would, would by the Father's power, reveal to you who I am. That, that's what Jesus did. He, he trusted the Spirit to make good on his part of the covenant that he would reveal truth to those given to him by the Father. This is the intra-Trinitarian work of the, of the gospel ministry of Jesus. There's Jesus. Who do you say that I am? And in his cloak, his fingers are crossed. Get this one right. I'm, I'm at the end of my infinite patience with these guys. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, who is always the spokesperson of the 12. Whatever he says sort of uh, represents the rest of them. He stands forward and says, you are the Christ. 
And we don't have a lot of story here about what Jesus says in return. Matthew tells us a big slog of what Jesus says back. But what we know is that he was dead on. Jesus was Christ. After all that he was doing, the Holy Spirit had revealed at least that much to them. The Spirit had changed their hearts, given them some sight to know that Jesus, this Nazareth boy, this carpenter graduated to rabbi, he was the Christ. And and maybe that doesn't make a whole lot of um, emphatic statements there to us, the Christ. But, But in a Jewish mindset, that meant everything. Christ means anointed one. It's it's the other word for Messiah in in the Hebrew. Jesus was the Christ, the anointed one, Messiah. It also meant that they were saying he's the king who is bringing a kingdom according to the prophecies. It means that he is a priest who is going to come in, expiate sin through some kind of blood atonement. He's some kind of, or he is the promised prophet who's going to come and speak the words of God and finish revelation from God. No more prophets after the Messiah. It's finished. He's the one who's going to come and bring the presence of God to his people. He's the one who is spirit-filled and anointed to fulfill all of the promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Jeremiah. This was the son of Eve come to crush the serpent's head. This was the true Israelite, the Christ, the true Israelite who would come and fulfill all of the Israelite commandments and requirements. He was the one. He was here. He was Jesus. And he commanded them with that knowledge to tell nobody because the blind will misrepresent that. The blind will misunderstand that. That won't help gospel ministry. Keep it quiet, but confirm to them you are correct. This is the, the turning point of Mark because so far he's been vague. He's been, he's been very uh, 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 much speaking in parables and confusing word pictures, but now he's just telling them explicitly, I am the Christ. The demons were saying it and I shut them up, but now you know I am the Christ. I claim everything the word of God says about the Messiah for myself and I will do it. This is Jesus. This is our Lord God that we worship, God in flesh, Jesus Christ, completing salvation for all those who will trust in him. So again, we would be tempted to think that the disciples were on point right here. They've got full sight. They know exactly who Jesus is. They know exactly what to expect. They understand the Old Testament. They know this is the Christ. They're done. They're graduated. End ministry, Jesus. Go and die. Everything will be good. Entrust them with the Great Commission. Get out of here. Make some room. These guys have got it. Is that what we see? What Mark wants us to know is that spiritual blindness is most evident when it looks at the cross of Jesus. You know, you can walk into the doctor's appointment and they could ask you, Are you seeing okay? And everybody's going to say, yeah, fine. I can see great. Don't know what my wife's talking about. Not your wife. Oh, who? No, I can see fine. I don't need glasses. They don't just take your word for it. What do they do? They they sit you down, and they have a a very uh, carefully designed test that is is very accurate at showing what parts of your eye and, and visual ocular circuitry system is functional or not. 
They have a very carefully designed test. If somebody just looks at this, we can uh, uh, diagnose how their site is. That anywhere else in the world, it might actually be a little bit easy to blend in because you can make shapes out and whatnot. But this test, it manifests blindness, half blindness, quarter blindness, long-sightedness, short-sightedness. The cross is that test given from God. When he reveals the cross to the world, people who seemed to have spiritual sight are shown to be blind by how they respond to it. People who seemed to be dumb in the world's eyes are shown to be the wisdom of God by how they respond in faith to the cross. And so the disciples right now, they seem to see, they seem to understand, and Jesus says one more test. Let me tell you about the cross that awaits this Christ. And here they manifest their blindness. So Jesus, as, as soon as he reveals to them that he is this glorious Christ, so we've seen their sight, now we're going to see their blindness. As soon as he reveals that, he starts telling them, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days to rise again. And he was telling them this plainly. No parables. No stories, no word pictures, just straight fact. Here's how it's going to go down. Jesus, in explaining to him his person, has now explained to them his work, and they see none of it. They misunderstand it all, which is really only half, right? They got the person. They understood the person of Jesus. They only misunderstand the work of Jesus. Is that really important? To miss this is to miss everything. Here, on the gospel, let us say it again. Half-blindness is as good as total darkness. So Jesus tells them this. And, and of course, 32 tells us, uh, this is where we, uh, uh, we see the, the misunderstanding, the blindness. Can we say stupidity? Can we just say that? Like, we're, we're not judging Peter, because we're all Peters. You're not going to own up to it. I'm telling you, that's okay. We're all Peter here. This is us. Day by day, naturally, in our Christian life, before we were Christians, after we are Christians, we are Peter. But he's stupid. I mean, he's just confessed, you are the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, ruler of the galaxies and the earth, and every king will bow down to you. Come here, let me tell you, grab you by the ear and tell you where you just went wrong. No, Jesus, actually. He doesn't just correct him. The Bible says that he rebuked Jesus. He kind of pulled him to the side, but Jesus turns and talks to everybody. So, so it's not like he's out of earshot. He wants Peter's other disciples, the other 11, the measly 11. They need to hear what he's about to disciple Jesus in. You know? So he keeps him in earshot and he tells Jesus, you know, it's my turn, pal. Let me tell you, no death, no rejection, no, no being killed, no being judged by the petty or religious authorities. Not for the Christ. No, no, no. You have glory awaiting you. And us too. We're, we're in your train. Because remember, whatever happens to you will happen to us, and we would much prefer glory. And before we go through what Jesus responds very kindly to Peter, we have to understand why they were so blind to this. Of course, we're not judging them, right? Because that's us. Well, we are judging him, but we're throwing ourselves right in there with him. The reasons that this was so misunderstood, so hard to wrap their minds around, was first of all because it was so startling. 
he says here, he adds another title to what he's saying. He just said Christ and all those things we talked about. But Jesus adds another name, which is Son of Man. That's a, a name drawn out of Daniel 7. One of my favorite prophecies. The most glorious picture is that Jesus is the king who receives the kingdom from the eternal God and rules with all dominion, all power, all glory, forever. Never dies. His kingdom never fails. He's glorious. And Jesus, in one of the few errors that he makes, you know, Peter's patient with him, but Jesus says that the Son of Man on the clouds of glory at the right hand of Yahweh, eternally ruling and reigning, is going to be rejected. You don't get to reject the Son of Man. He's not asking you your opinion. He is the Son of Man. And then he's going to be, be mistreated and not just die. It's not just that Jesus is saying the Son of Man has a mortality about him. He will die eventually and pass on the kingdom to his son. He's not saying that. He's saying he's going to be killed, which means defeated, overpowered. How does that happen to the Son of Man? He can't be rejected and killed. That's not what happens. And, and of course, to be handed over to these, the authoritative religious men, was, a, was an insult. They were going to lose. That's what they heard him saying. All that we're doing is about this, disciples. The Christ loses forever. Well, now we see why Peter pulls him aside. This is completely startling to them with their Jewish mindset, but also it was so, so confusing because he said it so clearly. They're not used to this. You've overthought things, right? Maybe it's your wife or your husband or your parent or a teacher or a professor at uni or your boss, and they just ask you like a short question. They're staring at you and you're certain you know the answer. But because you're so certain, you're pretty uncertain that that's the answer because they're probably trying to trip you up. So you stand there looking like a stunned mullet, an idiot in front of the staff board. You want to say it. You know the answer. But if you say it and it's wrong, you, you, this is so embarrassing. Jesus was saying things so clearly to them, they didn't know what to do with it. We're usually confused. Like it sounds like he's saying he'll be killed and then rise again. What could that mean? Well, the disciples were yet to receive their full sight. But also, and this is the high point of Jesus' message to them, the reason this was so confusing, so startling, was because he said that this was entirely necessary. Look at verse 31. He said that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must this was not an optional part of the, of the work of God. We know that if anybody wanted another option, it was Jesus. Nobody else prayed to God so hard, so strenuously that they started sweating blood because of the stress of this kind of part of the mission. Jesus, if anybody wanted it, wanted there to be another option, but he knew what the word said. He says the promises have been made, the prophecies have been made. The nature of God and the nature of sin cannot be debated. They cannot be changed. God is an infinitely holy God, eternally existent. And sin is a breaking of, an insult towards, a rebellion of God's holiness. 
Not just an external law that he wrote up one day, but himself, his heart. And in response to that, all that justice requires is complete destruction of the sinner. And if they cannot make an infinite payment in a moment, they must make a finite payment forever. Jesus knew the Son of Man must suffer if there will be salvation, which isn't even contingent anymore. It's already happened in the Old Testament. God's already, as we just heard from the LBC, declared Abraham righteous. He's declared Moses righteous, declared Adam righteous, declared David righteous. So God doesn't have an option. He needs to pour out his wrath on somebody else. He's already promised he wouldn't do it to them. Jesus, in his mind, it is locked solid on the words of God and the nature of human sin. It is necessary that someone would die. It had to be a righteous person, otherwise they can't substitute for you, they've got their own debt. And it has to be a divine person, otherwise they can only pay for one more person's sin. The son of man, divine man, perfect man must come and suffer many things if salvation would ever happen. Do you think like that? Is the atonement, uh, you know, the fifth or sixth part of your theology that you tend to think about every now and then, or is it a necessity? Do you see God through the shape of the cross? Do you see the word of God through the, through the color of the gospel of Jesus? Do you think like Paul, who said that it is all that he preaches about is the cross, and everything that he teaches relates to it? Do you see like Paul that this is of first importance, the death? and resurrection of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of Man. Jesus says this is absolutely necessary that the Son of Man die and suffers. If anyone will be made right with God, God's justice must be satisfied this way. And so with all of that working against them, all of those reasons why this was a pretty stark teaching, they forgot the first rule of biblical hermeneutics. The first rule of interpreting the word of God is, I'm always wrong. It's the first rule. Wherever you disagree with the word of God, in the person of Jesus or the words of scripture, the assumption, I am wrong. They didn't. They thought, well, Jesus is getting this wrong. Divine God in flesh is, is in error here. And they, through the mouth of Peter, rebuked him. They denied that the cross could happen to the Messiah, the one who is, uh, who is never to die, the king who is never to lose, the holy one who is never to be cursed, was going to put on the most cursed picture in human history, the Roman cross. They could not believe that. They, they could not do that without blowing apart so much of their existent theology. And Jesus rebuked to Peter here. What Jesus says in verse 33, and we'll read it in a moment, find it in your own Bible right there, put a finger there, Jesus' words right here show us that to believe in Jesus without a sound understanding of the cross is to be as blind as the man who thought that people are walking trees. People are made out of bark and leaves as much as Jesus of the Bible can be put together without the cross. Penal substitution, imputation, justification, redemption by blood, atonement by expiation, Appeasing of God's wrath through propitiation. The all words we teach here, don't be afraid of any of them. They just mean that Jesus died for our sin. To make up a picture of Jesus where that is not primary 
is to look at human beings like trees that walk around and flap their mouths. It's blindness. It's functional darkness while the light is shining right here. This underpins every part of Christian life and theology. We're going to see when we come back to the book of Mark in chapter 9 how it underpins all of our life and attitude that we are those who are crucified with Jesus. We take up our cross and follow him. It underpins all of our theology for all great doctrines of the word of God meet and coalesce in the cross of Jesus Christ. It is everything. We can't misunderstand this and still know Jesus. But what Jesus says, and so we're here now, verse 33, when Jesus rebukes Peter and in turn rebukes us through, through Peter, he's showing to him that there is a guilt in blindness. Have you so far, let's be honest with yourself, have you so far sort of wanted to defend Peter? Because blindness, I mean, like this guy, it wasn't his fault. He was blind. Somebody put, maybe somebody spat him in the eye. Maybe that's why he got blind first. Maybe he fell on, on shards of glass. Maybe he developed a, degener, a, a degeneration of his, of his uh, oculate system. We don't know. Why is he guilty for being blind? Well, he's not. But the spiritual blindness is a guilty thing because the truth of the word of God has always been in front of people. The spirit of God has always been accessible for those who would believe. Jesus is saying, you have reason not to be spiritually blind. You are spiritually blind. And it is because, right here in verse 33, you misunderstand because you put your mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. He says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And this is the vicious cycle. This is the vicious cycle. The more you misunderstand the word, the more you set your, things, your mind on the things of man. And the more you set your mind on the things of man, the more you misinterpret the Bible. And so we have this vicious cycle of, of human blindness. And Jesus is saying, if you had just heard and you had just believed, you would see. You are guilty, Peter. And this is the way that it is in the, in the church today. Uh, division comes, distraction comes, degrading of the gospel comes, toning down of the harsh parts of the word of God that happens because people interpret what God says through human lenses instead of interpreting everything through the lens of God's word. It is our supreme and primary authority in everything. And we hold each other accountable to that. We preach clearly from it because of that. We are word of God people. We're Bible people. That, that you want to know what Reformed Baptist means? We just try to be Bible people. That's what matters. You call yourself that, you're welcome here. We're Bible people. Because to interpret things through our own lenses leaves us half blind and fully blind. To think about the suffering of Christ to appease the wrath of God as, as something potential but not likely in the cross of Jesus is to not set your mind on the things of God. It is to completely misunderstand and not know God. To think that, that fulfilling Scripture is less important than personal glory, that's what Jesus should have been about, that is to not know God, is to not see Him. To think about glory coming from mere political power and human acclaim and not the Father is to misunderstand God and be blind. To think about a Savior whose primary aim 
is to heal Mother Nature, do social justice, and end world hunger, that is a half and full functional blindness that does not know God. To think about a God who, who asks for our permission and our advice and is constantly at our beck and call like some kind of moral therapeutic genie is to not know God. And that half blindness is full blindness. To think of a Jesus who rules a kingdom that is established and characterized by, to think of a Jesus who rules a kingdom that is established and characterized by anything other than the blood sacrifice of the cross is to not know God. And we might say, no, no, I know God. I just don't agree with all the cross stuff. This is the vision test. This is the eye test. You say you can see. Do you love the cross? Have you brought your sin to the cross? Have you heard what we proclaim here? That Jesus came to fulfill what was necessary and he did it. That he did not say, it is necessary that you bring some good works. He did not say, it is necessary that people clean up their lives. He didn't say that. He didn't say, it is necessary that you complete some, some, some list of deeds. That you bring a certain amount of money or devotion or holiness or, or a clean life. He says, none of that. He says, it is necessary that the Son of Man should suffer. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to suffer under the wrath of God because he did. You don't have to be righteous or have anything in your hand when you come to the cross. He did it all. This is the cross. And, and by this, we know God. So the, the call that Mark wants us to understand, the call that Jesus is teaching his disciples to proclaim to the world, and the call that I give to you this morning is lay your deeds whereby you're trying to be righteous before God down. Leave them. Until you have clung to Jesus, your good works are a weight pulling you down to the bottom of the sea. But when you hold to Christ, you have all the righteousness before the law that you need. When you cling to Christ by faith, because you see that the cross is not a gross distraction of God, it is the wisdom and power and glory of God, where Jesus died and rose again. When you do that, you're adopted into his family, brought into his kingdom. You are, you are promised an inheritance for eternal ages that is yet to come. The cross is who we are as Christians. The, believing the cross is what we do to become Christians. Remembering the cross is how we make it in the Christian life, sinful and pathetic though we are. You remember the cross? That's your first thing you remember every morning. You will take joy in this life wherein you sin. You will still have the confidence to keep on giving obedience a crack because Jesus paid for all of the shortcomings. You will have the faith to go on laboring because the work of the Lord is complete. You're not earning salvation. You have salvation. Friends, let me plead again. If you do not believe in Jesus, you have no reason to wait. There is nothing more that God requires. Every requirement was made by Jesus. Lay it down, come near, trust in him, and he will make you as righteous as he is. He will cleanse you of your sin because he died that you might live with him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, your own son, the very picture of who you are, the, 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 the picture of your glory said, it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things, be rejected and be killed. 
God, we know from what the word of God tells us that what was, what was going on in the background was that you were making him to suffer many things. And we are so tempted to be distracted by, by, by other things. We are so tempted to want to add our good works, add our good life, add our changed behavior before we come to you. But Lord, please make clear today, nothing can be done that can convince you to love people. Nothing can be done to, to incline your heart towards us. You have already shown your love and your justice through the cross of Jesus Christ. We love you, God. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for a finished righteousness that we didn't have to earn. We thank you for a forgiveness that we didn't have to acquire for ourselves. So God, we pray that you would give that salvation to more. The joy that we, that we delight in to know you as our Savior, would you please help us to share that with others? Would you bring others to believe, sinners though they are, they can be saved by you because the cross did everything. Lord, heal us from our spiritual blindness. Heal us from our half-blindness. Let us see clearly the cross and through it, everything. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit among us right now. And everybody said, amen.